Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene! Run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back! I'm Robert Evans. Podcasts, behind the bastards, bad people. Talk about them. This is part two of our episode on the Sacklers, so you, you should have listened to the first one by now, and this intro shouldn't seem out of place. If you haven't, what, what the hell's going on, weirdo? Like, listen listen to the episodes in the right order. Yeah, this is not Memento. Yeah. This is behind the bastards. And this is, and by this I mean you, James Heaney. Oh, yes. Actor, comedian, uh, street fighting champion. Well, I never won. But I've been in a street fight or two. <laughs> and uh, you get the plugs in the P-Zone. Uh, I'm in Alchemy This. Yes. It airs every Tuesday and Thursday. It's an improv show. We get suggestions from the audience, emails, and it's with Kevin Pollack, that Kevin Pollack. We have a live show, May 7th, at the Dynasty Typewriter Theater in downtown LA. Awesome. I really hope you're there, you specifically. Me specifically. I might be. I might be uh, in another I was, state. I was actually talking... To you oh, specifically, to, to you? the listener, to the listener specifically. Yes, yes I, I mean, I'm, you're welcome to come, but I'm not going to reserve a seat for you. I've I've stated my desire that <laughs> listeners gang uh, up on the on the venue and force their way in in yeah. a mighty surge. And uh, when you a, talk a about the weapons, wave. the weapons was probably maybe too far. Well, okay, but think about think about it this way. Remember Escape from New York? Pretty yeah. pretty cool movie. Sure. Pretty fun movie. Yeah. You remember the sequel in L.A. when he has to shoot the basketballs or he gets uh-huh. murdered? Uh, yeah. Also a pretty cool movie. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, exactly. What yeah. if that was a comedy show? Yeah, it would be like that. It would be like that. It also reminds me, if people were invading the theater to see the show live armed, they'd be prepared if it happened here. If it happened here. Because it could. Which is my other podcast. Right? Yeah, is that it, it could. Now, let's let's move off from that depressing <laughs> topic to a different depressing topic. Okay. The origins of our nightmarish opiate crisis. We've been talking about, of course, the Sackler family, uh, which, you know, most of these Sackler men are and were, of course, doctors, uh, you know, from Arthur down to Richard. But their real talent and passion seems to have been for marketing rather than medicine. When OxyContin first went onto the market, Purdue's sales force was around 300 people. By the end of the millennium, it had doubled to more than 600 people, equal to the number of DEA agents fighting the abuse of prescription drugs. That is most likely a coincidence. But that sales force was absolutely critical to OxyContin's commercial success and to the opiate epidemic currently burning its way through the American heartland. I found a great study on this, published in the U.S. National Library of Medicine, titled The Promotion and Marketing of OxyContin, Commercial Triumph, Public Health Tragedy. It lays out exactly how Purdue Pharmaceutical, at the direction of Richard Sackler, president and co-chairman of the board for the company, quote, 
From 1996 to 2001, Purdue conducted more than 40 national pain management and speaker training conferences at resorts in Florida, Arizona, and California. More than 5,000 physicians, pharmacists, and nurses attended these all-expenses-paid symposia, where they were recruited and trained for Purdue's National Speaker Bureau. It is well documented that this kind of pharmaceutical company symposium influences physicians' prescribing, even though the physicians who attend such symposia believe that such enticements do not alter their prescribing patterns. One of the cornerstones of Purdue's marketing plan was the use of sophisticated marketing data, to influence physicians prescribing. Drug companies compile prescriber profiles on individual physicians, detailing the prescribing patterns of physicians nationwide in an effort to influence doctors' prescribing habits. Through these profiles, a drug company can identify the highest and lowest prescribers of particular drugs in a single zip code, county, state, or the entire country. One of the critical foundations of Purdue's marketing plan for OxyContin was to target the physicians who were highest prescribers for opioids across the country. Another name for these guys would be Pill mills. Pill mills. That's what you've heard. For Purdue Pharmaceuticals' stated plan was to essentially make pill mills happen by finding the doctors who were most willing to just give anyone a prescription for opiates and then essentially giving them more money, having them speak at events and flying it them to nice like conferences. It sounds like a multi-level marketing thing. It does. It does kind of sound like that. Kind of sounds... Like, like, oh, you're really good at selling these. Why yeah. don't you go speak to other people and get yeah, them to sell it? You'll get a little it. cut of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is kind of what was going on. There's a pretrial memo from a case in Massachusetts that's ongoing this year, and it includes a quote from one of the promotional videos that Purdue mailed to thousands of doctors. Quote, There's no question that our best, strongest pain medications are the opioids, but these are the same drugs that have a reputation for causing addiction and other terrible things. Now, in fact, the rate of addiction amongst pain patients who are treated by doctors is much less than 1%. They don't wear out. They go on working. They do not have serious medical side effects. Mm. What year was that? Uh, that would have been like 1999. Okay, I, think. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. don't want to give them cr- like it's 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 terrible. Yeah, but it is only four years in before the whole crisis is out of control. It is, but it's At also why the crisis. Gets it's out also of why the crisis yeah. is there. You're right. Yeah, You're totally right. As one sales rep later told a reporter, quote, we were directed to lie. Why mince words about it? Greed took hold and overruled everything. They saw that potential for billions of dollars and just went after it. Sean Thatcher was a Purdue sales rep from 2009 to 2015. He went into more detail on this when he was deposed in court. Quote, High decile prescribers were those who prescribed more of Purdue's drugs or, because of their prescribing of other opioids, were potentially high prescribers. They were priority targets for the sales team. Salesmen and women were paid lavish bonuses for increasing OxyContin sales in their territories. In 2001, annual bonuses for sales averaged $71,500. Purdue paid more than $40 million that year to salesmen who managed to convince doctors to prescribe more OxyContin. From 1996 to 2000, Purdue increased its physician call list from between 33 and 45,000 to between 70 and 94,000 doctors. So they're just selling this shit to doctors as hard as they can. One and me- did those people need a degree and have to know anything about the the salespeople? Yeah. Oh, under no circumstances. No. Why would you, why would they need to know anything about? I medicine? guess probably the less the better. Yeah, the less the better. The better you get it. You don't have any bullshit in your head about helping people, mm-hmm. about doing no harm. And you haven't you can had sell to Oxy. sign that Hippocratic oath. Oh, that because that's not <laughs> that gonna get how you, you pronounce anywhere it. Good. Hippocratic. Yeah, yeah, the Hippocratic <laughs> oath. You don't want anybody who's who knows what that is yeah. selling pills for you. Now, uh, one method that Purdue had to convince doctors to be frequent prescribers was their coupon program. They would give doctors free limited-time prescription coupons for their patients who are first-time users. These coupons were generally good for a 7- to 30-day supply of OxyContin. Now, if your school was anything like mine, you remember teachers worriedly telling you that drug dealers would regularly give out free pot or heroin or whatever. God, I never, never you, once. I mean, that, that's what I was told as a yeah, kid, is that oh. like, yeah, they'll give you free stuff to get you addicted, and then yeah. they start charging you. I've never seen a drug dealer give away free drugs no. like that. Not once have I ever been like, had someone be like, here's some free heroin, man. You know, but come, come back to me if you like it. Like, that, yeah, but at the same time, they were probably teaching people that would grow up to be salespeople. Exactly, because that's that that's that's, that's the, where it actually was done. The business, yeah, part. The, that Purdue actually did the thing that like we joke about our teachers telling us drug dealers did that they mm-hmm. obviously didn't. It's fucking nuts. The company gave out more than thirty-four thousand coupons by the time they ended the program in two thousand one. At that point, OxyContin did not need any more help spreading. Doctors were also bribed with lamer gifts, OxyContin fishing hats, stuffed animals, and CDs with titles like Get in the Swing with Wa- with OxyContin. Oh my I'm, I'm guessing God. it was swing music. 
Probably. Yeah, How yeah. embarrassing would it be for like you to be out with your family with your dad wearing an oxycotton hat? We're like, like, oh, dad, come on! Going on the family road trip and popping in an oxycotton ska album. <laughs> Real addicted fish. Uh, we'll figure. Mighty mighty addicts. I, I don't know. I, I can't figure out a mighty mighty boss tones one. We'll, we'll 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 workshop it. According to the DEA, no one had ever done this before with a Schedule II opioid. Perhaps there is a reason for that. Purdue salespeople were also heavily targeted primary care doctors. By 2003, almost half of the doctors prescribing OxyContin were primary care physicians. The National Institutes of Health explains why this was an issue. Quote, Some experts were concerned that primary care physicians were not sufficiently trained in pain management or addiction issues. Primary care physicians, particularly in a managed care environment of time constraints, also had the least amount of time for evaluation and follow-up of patients with complicated chronic pain. So they specifically targeted the kinds of doctors who didn't have training in prescribing opiates and weren't likely to check back in with patients to make sure that they hadn't developed a problem. As a result, primary care doctors kept prescribing and people kept getting addicted. Mm. Good strategy for Purdue. Yeah, go to the dummy doctors. Go to the doctors who don't know what or who, you know, like that's just not what they're supposed to do. Like before Purdue, primary care physicians weren't handing out a lot of opiate prescriptions. Now, I'm not a... I don't know a lot about doctors, but isn't a primary care physician the doctor you go to most regularly unless something is Yeah, unless something – exactly. And you used to only get something like OxyContin if something was really wrong. But wouldn't you think that those doctors would have some more investment in a person that they hopefully know? Like you're returning to this person and well, they're going to have to see this person deteriorate over time. I don't know that you are because I think a lot of people don't have – I think a lot of these are like doctors at clinics and stuff. And okay. so you don't have – you know, if you don't have health care, you're probably not going – on a super regular basis, or even if you do, like I, it, I since I was a kid, was the last time I had. I don't a doctor want to I say to when the last time I've been to the doctor, but yeah. it's been more than ten years. Yeah, I have. I have <laughs> texted some fans who were doctors questions in the past, and that's like my healthcare plan. Yeah, yeah, but I've always thought primary care was like, oh, that's your doctor. Like, go find what doctor you want. You go back to that, and that's your primary care doctor. Yeah, I think that's what it is for some people, but I think for a lot of people, it's just like the doctor at the the doc in the box clinic. And the doc like, in the box. You know, they see you if you've got a problem, and they're not going to check back in because um, it's not their job. Before Purdue, uh, most opioids were prescribed on a long-term basis were used for what's called malignant pain, which is essentially like what cancer patients are going through, pain that is the result of a deadly and ongoing illness. Purdue aggressively pursued the idea that opiates should be for any kind of pain, especially chronic pain. By 1999, the non-cancer pain-related market had grown to be 86% of the opioid market. Purdue company training emphasized to salespeople that the risk of addiction with OxyContin was less than 1%. This was based on two large studies that found addiction to opioids was not common with people who were prescribed them after serious injuries, like a burn. None of the research Purdue based their less than 1% stat on was done on people who were actually given opioids for chronic pain. We know now that the rate can be as high as 50%. Wow, so they, 50%? Yeah, they made the claim that like it, it, it's not addictive based on like someone would come in with like a serious injury and they'd get like, okay, well, we'll give you a month or two of oxy to deal with this. Most of those people didn't get addicted, so they were like, see, it's not addictive. But if you're given it for chronic pain... It's incredibly easy to get addicted. Yeah, but so they weren't. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, because 100. Uh, you're saying 50 percent people get addicted to it, it that, with that, chronic pain. Depending on the types of chronic pain, yeah. the rate of addiction can be as but high as 50. Wouldn't you? Th- well, I would expect that maybe addiction to the point of abuse and throwing your life away, 50 percent. But wouldn't anybody like physically simply become addicted because a chemical your doesn't your body assimilate to any chemical it puts in there? Like, isn't no, it not necessarily? So addiction's pretty complicated, and a lot of it has to do with the circumstances of your life. Um, so generally, like, you're less likely to get addicted if you're like reasonably happy, if you're okay with like your situation. So like. An injury like a burn or something that hurts mm-hmm. for a little while, you might just use the painkillers until the pain stops. And you're in, unless like, but if you're in a chronic pain situation, because like depression is so common with chronic pain, like those mm-hmm. people are more likely to have other stuff that like it makes them more vulnerable to a to to being addicted too. Because a lot of it is social. Like a lot of it has to do with what's going on in your life. It's why the rates of addiction out in the country where there's not much going on is so much higher. It's the same reason why the rate of alcoholism in like Alaska is through the roof. It's because like there's a lot of isolated people who don't have much else to do. So yeah. I think it probably has a lot to do with that. I've just thought that no matter what, if you took some drug to get rid of pain and you took it for a long period of time, your body assimilates to having that drug yeah. to not have pain. So is that not in itself 
Oh, it is, but but these people, like, the the, the studies where they said it wasn't addictive were based on people who just were taking for a short time. Okay. Like, you have a burn. You're not taking it for months for a burn, usually, or even, like, a a broken, you know, bone or something. Like, it's it's just to get you through the worst part of it, and then you stop. Okay. Um, Then I I was drawing a wrong conclusion. For some reason, I thought we were talking about the chronic pain. No, no, no. Chronic pain is super easy to get addicted to painkillers if they're prescribed for chronic pain. Sean Thatcher, that sales rep I quoted earlier, also alleged that he and his fellow salespeople were urged to use the term pseudo-addiction rather than addiction when talking about the risk of people getting addicted to OxyContin in order to make it seem less of a problem. Uh, By the early 2000s, it was clear that these strategies worked, so Purdue kicked it into high gear. They bribed every single level of the distribution chain, and they did it legally. In addition to the free drug coupons for users, Purdue gave wholesalers rebates for keeping OxyContin off their prior authorization lists. These are lists healthcare companies keep of drugs and medical devices that require extra approval before dispensation. Purdue also bribed pharmacists by giving them free refunds for their first orders. Medical researchers got grants, presumably to keep showing that OxyContin wasn't addictive. Purdue also spent millions advertising in medical journals. And here's one example you can see. Should I describe Mm -hmm, this? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's a picture walking upstairs. Take the next step in pain relief. Well, that makes sense. The person's Mm -hmm. going up the stairs. Mm -hmm. Oxycontin. Uh, Some letters that I don't associate with anything. And uh, rapid onset of, I don't know that word for six months. Mm, One to start and stay with. Easy to dose, easy to titrate. Titrate, yeah. I know that word, titrate. I use it all the time. I was just titrating uh, to see this clearly. I had to hold it further away from my face. So one to start and stay with. It sounds like Pringles. One to start and stay with. Once you pop, you just can't stop. Yeah, it it is. There's kind of a little bit of like like, uh, sinister in there. Like one to start and stay with. Yeah. Take the next step in pain relief. The intentions with this was never for chronic pain, but that seems like it's targeted to chronic pain. Oh, no, that's what they were trying to sell it for. It just doesn't work well for that. It just doesn't work well because it's going to be addictive. Yeah, it's going to be addictive and it's not going to, like, deal with the problem. Like, one of the things that they found particularly recently is that it's just a bad idea to give people opiates for chronic pain. Like, they're for acute pain and they're for people who are dealing with, like, you know, malignant pain. And we're not going to solve all the problems today, but what is the better option for chronic pain? I mean, usually a combination of, like, physical therapy. There are some lighter sort of painkillers that can help a lot of people do find relief with stuff like marijuana um but like if you're some of it is like just dealing with a higher level of pain which sucks but you have to deal with pain but it's better than a life of being addicted exactly it's it's better and healthier than that and like you can have you know sometimes you use medication for help sleeping Mm -hmm. and stuff but like prescribing someone oxycontin because they've got chronic back pain it just gets a lot of people killed yeah yeah and it stops them from from healing in some cases because some of these things people can get better from, but like, then they, they just instead just do a lot of oxy. So Purdue and the Sackler family also made certain to donate piles and piles of cash to senators and congresspeople on important committees. The company itself was fairly bipartisan, but Richard Sackler preferred to donate to Republicans. We'll talk a little bit more about his donations later. So the bribery, or legally distinct from bribery, occurred on every possible level, but Purdue lavished most of its attention on doctors. Here's Esquire again, quote, We used to fly doctors to these seminars, said Sherman, which were in practice just golf trips to Pebble Beach. It was graft. Though offering perks and freebies to doctors was hardly uncommon in the industry, it was unprecedented in the marketing of a Schedule II narcotic. For some physicians, the junkets to sunny locales weren't enough to persuade them to prescribe. To entice the holdouts, a group the company referred to internally as problem doctors, the reps would dangle the lure of Purdue's lucrative speakers bureau. Everyone was automatically approved, said Sherman. We would set up these little dinners, and they'd make their 15-minute talk, and they'd get $500. That's not bribery because reasons. Wait, because reasons? Because reasons. It sounds like bribery. I said, they're giving a speech. It's not bribery. But the loophole is, yeah, the speech yeah. is doing some sort of work. Exactly. It's, it's yeah, it's super shady. Um, speaking of things that are shady. No, that's not a good way to pivot into the ad. Sophie, I'm tailspinning here. What do we, what do we, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta put some daylight in between that. Whenever I need to be saved, I do commercial work. Oh, I'm yeah. a commercial actor. Oh yeah. Well, could you do a commercial for something on this table? Maybe you're these... going to be surprised how well I can change my voice. <clears throat> Maybe these Listen... halls triple soothing action mints. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, halls. Sometimes just the name is yeah, good. That, 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 is, that was great. Yeah. Is that I'm, not? Is that I'm, not? Yeah, I'm ready to buy some halls. Sophie, can we order a thousand of these? You at the listener, uh, order a thousand halls, and also order a thousand of whatever products are advertised unless it's again uh, oxycontin which i hope is not being advertised on this podcast although if if they do i want some free oxy sophie can we can we set that up 
we can't set that up. That would be a huge conflict of interest. But- Products! <laughs> The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. We're back! Oh boy, those are great products. I threw my money at the microphone, but nothing came out of it. I know, I know, you did, you did. You have to throw your money harder. Well... It's mm-hmm. quarters. I figured I'd have yes. to throw it hard. I recommend everyone throw their money at whatever is nearest to them. Uh, it will. Uh, I'm very hungover. Um, <laughs> let's just let's just talk more about the fucking Sacklers. <laughs> All right. Uh, Purdue and the Sacklers faced no consequences for any of their malfeasance until 2007, when the state of Virginia sued their asses for misbranding OxyContin. In legalese, misbranding is a wide term that includes outright lying about a medication's strength and addictiveness. Three company executives pled guilty to misleading regulators. In a public statement, Purdue said this, quote, 
Nearly six years and longer ago, some employees made or told other employees to make certain statements about OxyContin to some healthcare professionals that were inconsistent with the FDA-approved prescribing information for OxyContin and the express warnings it contained about risks associated with the medicine. The statements also violated written company policies requiring adherence to the prescribing information. We accept responsibility for those past misstatements and regret that they were made. That sounds pretty good. Oh, yeah, of course. If they were... They regret it. They yeah, and they accept responsibility. So I'm sure that there's going to be paying back and covering medical bills, right? Is that no, I mean there there was actually some of that. We'll we'll, we'll get into <laughs> what, what kind of payback they had to give. The Sacklers were not forced to take responsibility, however. So this is oh, just oh wait, the I guess company. I misunderstood that. No, this is just Purdue, and in fact, they explicitly none of the Sacklers were uh, were implicated, especially mm. not Richard Sackler, former CEO of the company and co-chairman of the board. Now. According to ProPublica, quote, Friedman, who by then had risen to chief executive officer, was one of three Purdue executives who pled guilty to a misdemeanor of misbranding OxyContin. No members of the Sackler family were charged or named as part of the plea agreement. The Massachusetts lawsuit alleges that Sackler-controlled Purdue board voted that the three executives but no family members should plead guilty as individuals. After the case concluded, the Sacklers were concerned about maintaining the allegiance of Friedman and the other executives, according to the Massachusetts lawsuit. To protect the family, Purdue paid the two executives at least $8 million, that lawsuit ledges so they did the mom thing they had three mm. of their three of their made men go to like i mean they didn't actually go to jail but like they got uh like two and a half years probation and they got community service so they had three of their guys who weren't members of the family give themselves up and then they bribed them millions of dollars and in theory there's two things i want to mention first of all when you call it misbranding it sounds like you're describing fraud i it don't does. understand does. the difference i think the difference is that their lawyers preferred the term. I think misbranding is like the legal. Well, term. honestly, I would One really of the legal prefer. All the fraud is too. Fraud's much nicer than misbranding. If yeah. you ask me. Second question would be, um, I don't remember. So I guess we'll just leave it at yeah, that one. It's 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 yeah. It's frustrating. Documents revealed that during the trial showed that. Uh, oh, right. that's what it was. Hmm. So they sent their employees to go to jail. Yeah. Right. Well, they didn't go to jail, but sent the, they they they, they pled guilty to service, misdemeanors. They yeah. They is had... that is that not the way that shell companies do work? It's, it's the like way the mob a, works. It's the way the mob works. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, the it's, way... it's exactly what happens. You're and then you just open up a new company, or you have new people that start taking charge of these yeah. things. And it's really shady because, like, one of the things they said is that well, no Sackler was a, had a direct position at the company since 2003, I think it was, and that's or two, two, yeah, like that's when um or after 2007, and like. Basically, Richard Sackler ran the company until they got into legal trouble, and then they promoted this guy Friedman to CEO, and Richard stepped back and was just on the board. But the majority of Purdue's board has always been Sackler family members, even though they were claiming. So they could say that, like, well, none of them work for the company. Well, it's because they're running it and getting all of the profits from the company. Yeah, Yeah. it's very, very shady. It's structured like a criminal enterprise, but is legally distinct from one because they have more lawyers than mafia dons. Mm. Which is hard to do, too. Which is, they, they hawk, because Mafia Dons do have a lot of lawyers. Yeah. Yeah. In 2016, 53,000 Americans died from opioid overdoses. 53,000? 53,000. For comparison, only 35,000 Americans died from gun violence. For more comparison, that is roughly the same number of Americans dying in one year as died throughout the duration of the war in Vietnam. Wow. Yeah. 2016. Just 2016. Chris Christie, head of the Commission on Combating Drug Addiction and the Opioid Crisis, recently noted that opiates kill roughly 142 Americans per day, which he noted was a September 11th every three weeks. I'm not normally a Chris Christie guy, but that's a good comparison to make. Yeah, it's very rare that I'm a Chris Christie. In fact, I refuse to be a Chris Christie guy even now. He did happen to accidentally say something. He made one good point. One good point. He made one good point, and that's a good point. Since 1999, more than 200,000 Americans are believed to have died from overdosing on prescription pain medication. That is roughly half of the number of Americans who died fighting in the Second World War. Wow. Yeah. As part of that 2007 plea agreement, Purdue Pharmaceuticals was forced to pay more than $600 million in fines, which is simultaneously one of the largest such fines ever leveled on a company and a slap on their wrist. You want to guess what Purdue's total profits for OxyContin are? I was just going to say it's got to be over... Multiple billions, right? Multiple billions is one way to put it. Uh, it's at least $35 billion. Wow. Yeah. $600 million doesn't sound like much of a fine. It does not. No. It's a, it's a drop in a bucket. It's a drop in a bucket. No members of the Sackler family admitted to any wrongdoing, but they and the company's board were all forced to pinky swear that the company would not break the law again. So that's something, right? You know, I, I feel like we can trust them. Well, it depends on whether or not they're going to not break the law again. Well, let's read the next It's paragraph. a good start. <laughs> yeah. 
The plea agreement also included a non-prosecution agreement, similar to the one Jeffrey Epstein signed. It basically made the Sacklers and company executives immune to any new criminal litigation based on activity that occurred before 2007. Since none of the Sacklers have been executives at Purdue since that point, it's likely they are pretty safe from the possible consequences for their crimes. Oh, or at wow. least that was the plan. That's absolute bullshit. Yeah, it's really frustrating, right? That's insane. Really pisses you off. Yeah. Speaking of their crimes, the Sackler family has done extraordinarily well off of OxyContin. Before the drug, they were just multimillionaires. Now their family is worth an estimated $14 billion, perhaps much, much more. Forbes put them on its list of America's richest families in 2015, a sign of how quickly they rose with the help of America's deadliest drug. We have mostly focused on Richard Sackler in this episode, and he is the man morally most culpable, but Sackler family members made up the majority of Purdue Pharmaceuticals' board for the entirety of the time we've discussed. The Sacklers, as a family, run the company, and they are notoriously tight-lipped about the source of their wealth. During his 11-hour deposition in Kentucky in 2017, Richard Sackler said, quote, I don't know more than a hundred times. He failed to recall exactly how much money his family had netted from the drug. He confirmed that it was more than a billion and said, I don't think so, when asked if it was more than 10 billion. While the Sacklers got unspeakably rich off OxyContin, the United States as a nation has suffered greatly. According to the American Public Health Association in 2013, the economic impact of opioid use totaled around $80 billion. And that was in 2013, before the opiate crisis hit its peak. A 2019 paper by Princeton economist Alan Kruger suggests that opioid addiction is responsible for fully 20% of the decline in labor force participation from 1999 to 2015. It is unlikely that the full extent of the damage caused by the Sacklers and Purdue Pharmaceutical will ever be known. Cool. Did they create the hunger for a world of fentanyl? Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. Because I don't, I don't see a world with fentanyl if no. it wasn't for them. It would exist putting down it, the red carpet of yeah. oxycotton. Mm-hmm. I think if if oxycotton hadn't existed, our problems with fentanyl would be veterans who got injured in the field and prescribed fentanyl maybe continue like like with Vietnam and morphine and stuff. Like I think that would have still been a problem because it's like you know you you lose a leg to a car bomb or whatever, and they give you a fentanyl lollipop and they shoot you full of it for weeks, and then you come home and you're addicted. But I don't think whole towns would be being wiped out yeah. in the in the Midwest and the Northeast and the the rural America would be suffering the way it is. I think that's all on. I think the hunger for fentanyl in the U. The U.S. consumes something like ninety percent of the world's painkillers. Like we're not ninety percent of the world. <laughs> like there's and not that many of us. Not actually, ninety percent of the world's pain. Yeah, yeah. Like it's incredible. Um, it's it's just incredible. Near the end of the deposition, a lawyer for the state of Kentucky asked Richard Sackler this. Sitting here today, after all you've come to learn as a witness, do you believe that Purdue's conduct in marketing and promoting OxyContin in Kentucky caused any of the prescription drug addiction problems now plaguing the Commonwealth? Sackler's response was, I don't believe so. Shockingly, there's still more to say, because in 2019, a bunch of information from several depositions was finally released onto the public record, after a years-long fight by Purdue to keep it hidden. Among other things, this information revealed that co-chairman Richard Sackler continued to have a major role in pushing OxyContin sales after 2007. According to Stat News, quote, In 2011, he decided to shadow sales reps for a week to make sure his orders were followed, the complaint states. Russell Gazdia, then the company's vice president of sales and marketing, who is also a defendant in the Massachusetts lawsuit, went to Purdue's chief compliance officer to warn that if Sackler directly promoted opioids, it was a potential compliance risk. LOL, the compliance officer replied, according to the complaint. Other staff raised concerns, but they ultimately said that Richard needs to be mum and anonymous when he went to the field. So Richard was going into the field, following sales reps around to find make sure they were pushing OxyContin enough. In 2011, four years after the lawsuit. Four years after the lawsuit? Four years after his company was sued for sick. He just kept on well, pushing that oxy. He was brave. He was as addicted to the money as America was to oxy. I'd like to see him have to take some, I don't know, crocodile tears and then take it away from him. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like, I think, I think with people like this, you should just take away all their money and make them live like normal people in an apartment. We'll also get yeah. them addicted. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, of course I, do, we get I wouldn't wish that on anybody, but I feel like you reap what you sow. I feel like in this case, yeah, forced addiction to an opiate might be might be fair for Richard Sackler. Give him a little taste of his own medicine, literally. Mm-hmm. Speaking of tasting your own medicine. I've been eating Halls again. Yeah, I don't know if you can smell it all the way over I, there. I, I it's can. my favorite. It sounds triple soothing. What if I was to tell you I had $1.75 for a bus ride to Venice Beach and I could give you $500 to give speeches if you sold thousands of Halls? 
Thousands of halls. You mean you mean sell them to my readers? Tell them about the menthol cough suppressant oral anesthetic I don't care who qualities? the fuck you give these halls to, but if you can get rid of a bunch of them, you're my I, guy. I got a crate of halls. <laughs> Free trip to Venice on a bus. On a bus. Buy some halls. Uh, and you're not I, as good a commercial I'm, actor I, as I am. I'm not. I'm not. I would not be able to eat if this were my job. <laughs> Products. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. We're back. Sophie approves of that. In 2009, a Purdue sales manager wrote a warning letter to a company executive stating that he had found Purdue employees were pushing opioids on an illegal pill mill. He asked, I feel very certain this is an organized drug ring. Shouldn't the DEA be contacted about this? Purdue took no action for two years. Why would they? So far, rampant dishonesty had netted them tens of billions of dollars in profits and one tiny fine. Now, I feel like we should probably end by talking just a bit about how the Sackler family decided to spend their vast wealth. 
They've donated much of it to museums, like the Guggenheim and the Tate and the Louvre. In the mid-aughts, before any of this was public knowledge, their generosity granted the Sacklers a reputation as high-minded philanthropists. But they did not only donate to museums. I'd like to quote from Sludge Now, a website that specializes in revealing gross donations made to shady organizations by terrible people. Quote, From 2014 to 16, the Richard and Beth Sackler Foundation donated $7,700 to the Middle East Forum, in addition to $150 in 2009. Middle East Forum is at the center of an Islamophobia network, according to the Center for American Progress. The forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats, and protects the freedoms of anti-Islamist authors, according to its website. The Middle Eastern Forum funded anti-Muslim rallies in London, and uh, including some rallies for a guy named Tommy Robinson, who is essentially a Nazi, like, mm. like literal Nazi Tommy Robinson. Uh, the Middle East Forum funded him to do rallies and live and stuff and continue being a Nazi, uh, and they got a lot of money from the Sackler family. Um, the founder of the Middle East Forum, Daniel Pipes, gave a speech in 2017 in which he said, quote, Muslim immigrants want to replace existing European civilization with Islam. You may recognize this sentiment as essentially the same thing that the Christchurch shooter wrote out in a 73-page manifesto before murdering 50 people in a mosque. Again, Daniel Pipes received money from Richard and Beth Sackler. The Sacklers also gave money to Stephen Emerson, founder of the Investigative Project on Terrorism. In that role, Emerson has claimed that Islam, quote, sanctions genocide, planned genocide as part of its religious doctrine. He has submitted faked FBI documents to news outlets in order to claim that American Muslim organizations are actually terrorist groups. In 2015, the Richard and Beth Sackler Foundation gave $15,000 to an Islamophobic group called Jihad Watch. That same year, they also gave 11500 to the American Defense Initiative, formerly known as Stop Islamization of America. These are just public donations. Hate groups tend to receive most of their funding from donor-advised funds, which are public charities that basically funnel money from anonymous rich people into groups that they don't want people to know they're donating to. So we know on paper that the Sacklers have donated tens of thousands of dollars to hate and hate-adjacent groups. The real number of their donations may be much higher mm. and in fact probably is this the, the, what's terrible is they're putting all this money to hate groups and mm. anti-muslim groups but when you look at it and i'm not an expert i don't know the numbers mm-hmm. but i'd bet money right here right now that more people have died from oxycontin than terror oh yeah i mean more people die from oxycontin in a day than have died from more americans die from oxycontin in a day than have been killed by all of isis yeah. and more total people have been killed by oxycontin than isis has killed even in iraq and syria um not that they haven't killed a lot of people but like fucking oxycontin's killed way more yeah. like it's a lot to me i'm not afraid of terrorism because it's not it's terrorizing. A, it's a pretty me. niche risk, whereas I know people who have had horrible pill problems. I am so afraid for my nieces and nephews. Yeah. I don't think they would ever do it, but that's what I'm afraid of. Yeah. That's that strikes fear into me. Way that- more of a threat. Yeah. Way more of a threat. Yeah. Oh, I should also note that the Richard and Beth Sackler Foundation donated money to True the Vote in 2016. That is the voter fraud watchdog that was the source of Donald Trump's claim that 3 million illegal immigrants voted in the 2016 election. So they gave money to those guys, too. Mm. Now, the good news, and there is at least a little bit of good news, is that all of the recent press about the rampant crimes of Purdue at the direction of the Sackler family has led to a number of their favorite foundations and museums to stop accepting their donations. Some of this is due to a protest at uh, the Guggenheim earlier this year. Activists dumped like a... You know, you know that comment uh, Richard Sackler made about like a blizzard of prescriptions? Yes. So a bunch of activists went to the Guggenheim and dropped like a literal blizzard of prescription papers in like the central foyer down like a couple of stairs and stuff. And, you know, the Guggenheim announced that they would not be taking any more Sackler money. And the oh, Tate, that, yeah. It's good. It's good. Yeah, the Tate made the same thing. Britain's National Portrait Gallery canceled reception of a $1.3 million donation from the family. So like these people are so toxic that charities are turning down their money now. Although, probably not the racist ones. Probably not the racist ones. (laughs) Additional lawsuits have begun to stack up against Purdue Pharmaceuticals, some targeting the Sacklers themselves for their involvement in company crimes after 2007. Last March, Purdue and the Sacklers agreed to pay $270 million to the state of Oklahoma. $75 million of that will come directly from the Sackler family. The suit in Massachusetts is still ongoing, and last March, another lawsuit was filed in the state of New York. This lawsuit also rests heavily on claims that the Sackler family are personally to blame for a huge amount of the opiate crisis. I'm going to quote from NPR's coverage of that now. 
Quote, New York's 251-page suit claims to offer new details of how the Sacklers serving on Purdue's board pushed year after year to boost the sale and consumption of their powerful opioid medications, reaping huge profits even as evidence mounted that the drugs posed a deadly risk. State officials claim they squeezed the company, funneling billions of dollars out of its coffers into a complex network of trusts, subsidiaries, and private offshore accounts. We allege that the family has illicitly transferred funds from Purdue to personal trusts so that they are potentially outside the reach of law enforcement and our ought efforts to seek restitution oh my god on a related note uh, as of the airing of this podcast approximately 145 americans die every day from opioid overdoses so that's insane ticked up a couple since uh, 2016 that's the story so in the one of the there's so many bad parts of this story mm-hmm. but my one of my concerns is it seems like there's no consequences to this it seems like this is still uh, there's nothing changing yeah so is that where something it's it's just not fair the health system has to change or else this is no as long as there's profit yeah this might be an ex, like the worst of it but as long as there's profit going on isn't this what we would expect from our health yeah. system i mean if 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 you are making for-profit pain medication all you care about is that if, you don't care don't that they're using it thing. for pain right you just care that they're using it if you don't take the profit out then you can't eliminate that yeah it seems like it might be uh, an inevitable consequence of the system as it is set up and i'm sure everyone else is at wondering this i should have asked earlier when you say purdue you do mean the chicken company right no no oh purdue my god oh my god so it's what? not <laughs> oh my god, I'm so sorry. I thought we were talking about the chicken company this whole time. No, no, no. Oh, no. I'm kidding. I'm sorry. You looked at me like you really thought I was serious. <laughs> I am so sorry. And one of the best things I could do is say the dumbest thing oh, on no. cue. The only chicken company I know is Tyson because the little town in Oklahoma where I grew up had a Tyson chicken plant. So that's that's what I think about. And also the little town in Oklahoma where I grew up has a crippling Oxycontin problem. Oh. Killing, killing a lot of people in Idabel. Yeah. Good times. Good times. Good do you think that times. there's a? Do you think that we've learned a lesson, and that with things like fentanyl that are taking over oxycotton, we're going to tighten up the rules that we have on these abusable drugs? I suspect we will continue punishing the users rather yeah, than punishing problem. people like Richard Sack. I mean, it looks like the opioid crisis is such a bipartisan thing. Everybody knows what a problem it is and it's fu- like it's it's not one of those things like climate change that a lot of chunks of the country don't believe in like everybody knows it's yeah. a thing and mm-hmm. so there might be serious consequences for the sacklers the attention's on it now i yeah. hope that we use this attention to do something yeah i hope they all wind up in a cell um i i i would like that for the sackler family i would like them to lose all their money and be in a prison cell because uh, they killed two hundred thousand people ish what what they did is legally distinct from murder I'll agree yeah. to that. But they killed a lot of people with their greed and corruption. And I mean, they're not incompetence, very competent, very competent scheme to addict America to painkillers. But like a trained assassin that. of the American dream. Yeah, I'll like a trained assassin of the American dream. Like you hired someone to kill the, the American heartland. And they were just like, what if we just flood it with pills? Little bitty white pills. Worked great. Mm-hmm. Good plan. Pretty, pretty cool. Pretty cool and good. Yay. It's times like these. I wished I believed that there was something to punish them in the afterlife. Oh, I that wish. That would be nice. I wish That I would could. be nice. I feel like if there was, a bolt of lightning would have struck Richard Sackler. A long, long time At ago. some point. Like when he heard that 59 people had died in Massachusetts and was like, eh, it could be worse. It could have been, a, could have been as bad as it's going to get. <laughs> like, uh, so, uh, that's... That's the episode, James. You, you want to plug some pluggables before we push out here? Well, yeah, of course I would. Uh, Alchemy This comes out every Tuesday and Thursday. Mm-hmm. It's improv inspired by the user's mail, email. Uh, so please check that out. And if you can, on May 7th at the Dynasty Typewriter Theater in downtown Los Angeles, we're going to have a live recording of it at... Uh, 8 p.m. Cool be there. beans. And I will be on BehindTheBastards.com and at BastardPod on Instagram and Twitter, although Sophie manages both of those because I don't know how to use Instagram and it scares me. I know Beyonce's on there and uh, I, I I don't know how to, how to interact with that. Huh? Is that who's on your shirt? I don't know much about Beyonce. I mean, I don't, I just don't know much about her. I know she's on the gram. I know she's big, a big grammar. She's gram and hardcore. Uh, but I don't know how to use the gram. 
Mm-mm. I just I I just tried to use Snapchat for the first time yesterday and it scared me and I I threw my phone in the trash and I haven't picked oh, it up. Oh, those ex- those are expensive. I would not throw your phone away. No. I would just uninstall the app. That I don't know how to do that. Oh, I'm so I'm, sorry. I'm, I'm you the got only, wrapped up in it. The only thing I know how to do is Twitter and I do too much Twitter. Well, you know how to do a damn good podcast or two. I would say there's a new one that you've got coming out. That is there. Sophie, do we have another podcast? Well, it's not new. It's but it's new to me because I haven't heard it yet and I'm excited. What what is what is that? What is the podcast? It could happen here. Oh, for yeah. God's sake! Oh, that thing. When I like, that it's thing. a scary thing. Right. But honestly, yeah. when we go through two hours of talking about oxycotton and people getting away with it, there's a sick side of myself that wonders if it happening here might be. It won't all be bad. I think that it maybe some bad. people might pay for serious consequences for what they've done. Yeah, yeah. But if I, don't I don't want to say that. I don't want to sound like an anarchist. Uh, I'm okay with sounding like an anarchist. I will say this. I hope that it doesn't happen here. But if it does, I hope one of the few positive aspects of it is that people like the Sacklers are punished. Yeah. Yeah. That they part shouldn't would be, be able nice. to rule without... Yeah. Without uh, balance, I don't yeah. Know, without some sort of rep- you know, somebody y- controlling that, you know, people shouldn't be going to prison for sixty years for no. selling pot, and then Richard Sackler gets fourteen billion dollars. <laughs> like that doesn't seem fair to me. Oh well, he paid six hundred million. In he fines. did pay. Well, his company did. He he paid seventy. He, he did have to just now. Whenever pay you're netting million. billions, you haven't yeah. been punished. Yeah, you haven't been punished. Yeah, it's like if you steal a million dollars from somebody's house. And the cops, when they arrest you, make you pay a thousand dollars. It's like, well, I, this was worth it. <laughs> like, <it's just laughs> I'll like, never do this again. Yeah, I won't do this tomorrow. I yeah. don't believe I'll do this again. Yeah, got him again. Got him again. The old believe word. Yeah, p- believe. Really, a lot of heavy lifting being done by the word believe in uh, pretty pharmaceutical ads. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been the podcast. I've been Robert Evans. Buy a shirt off of Tee Public. Sophie grabs her shirt and shakes it whenever it's time for me to mention the shirts because I always forget. So get a shirt on Tee Public. Get some of our branded Behind the Bastards hydrocodone, not Oxycontin for some reason that I don't understand, but it's got my face on it. We can't do that? You're telling me that's that's drug dealing, but I just we could I just heard about a guy who made thirty like fourteen billion dollars dealing drugs. Can we is that not okay? Okay, well, apparently we have to stop doing that. Uh, This is the end of the episode. It's done. It's finished. Daniel, are you going to turn off the episode? Is it it time to do that? Is it time to do that? Am I going on too long again? If I like. I I do have that freedom. This is a lot of power, because nobody can go until I finish the episode. So this is like, I know this, no one at home is enjoying this, but I'm feeling such a rush right now. Like, I, I'm holding the world in the... All right, it's, it's done. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week, we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. 
I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.